Our Father, we gather this morning with thanksgiving that we can come into the very throne room of God and speak directly to the one who controls everything in heaven and on earth. And this morning, I'm just brave enough to ask that you would move among us by your spirit, that all-powerful spirit of the living God. Would you do that today? Would you take simple human words and show the divine word of God, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you want to take your Bibles with me and turn to Genesis chapter 40, that's where we're at in the story of Joseph, but I need your help this morning. I need your help to be able to remember where we're at. It's been a couple of weeks and I'd like to, uh, so what we're going to do to do that, we're actually going to divide up and give different sections of our congregation this morning the chance to remember certain parts of the life of Joseph. So we're going to number you off. This section here, we're divided neatly by aisles, is section one. This is section two. You're a big section, so you should be able to do it really, really well. And this is section three, okay? So we've got three sections. You're going to help me remember and help us all put back together the pieces that we have experienced and we've walked through in the life of Joseph to this point so that we can now take it on to the, to the next level as we look at the following two chapters, these two chapters today. So, section one, I'm asking you a question. This is a, just a question for section one, but you can all listen in and see if they get it right. So here it is. Where was Joseph when we left him last time? He was in Egypt. He was in a particular place in Egypt. Yeah, you're right. You're good. High five. That's good. You're on. Section one's doing good so far. All right. But where in Egypt was he? Prison. Okay. So you're going to remember two words. Okay. We're going to recite this in just a minute. Your two words are in prison. Okay. You got it? He's in prison. Section two. All right. So why was he in prison? He was falsely accused. He was falsely accused of? Oh, wait, 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 wait section three. <laughs> you're doing great, but you're ahead of it. Okay, section two, where he was in prison for adultery. I mean, it was a false accusation, but for all practical intents and purposes, the reason he was there, they would have said, you're an adulterer. Okay, not a good situation. So you're going to remember two words for adultery. Okay, so in prison for adultery, okay? It, it's not a good scene. Okay, now's your turn, section three. No, <laughs> you're, you're all right. You can say it. So how long could he expect to stay in prison? Right. Actually, that's true. So interestingly enough, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, how many times do you find references to prison in the Old Testament? Well, you find references to it. How many times was it given as a sentence or a judgment? You do find references to it in places like Genesis, where Joseph was sent to prison. How many times was it given in the law as a sentence? None. Because prison wasn't really a common punishment in the ancient world. So, so Joseph was experiencing something a little bit different, and there were probably two possible reasons why a person would go to prison. One if they were awaiting their sentence. And we're going to find that out this morning because of some other people that were in prison with Joseph awaiting sentence. But there's a second thing that's very likely. It's very likely that sentence, sentence terms 
had no limit. It was a lifetime sentence, okay? We don't know for sure what took place in ancient Egypt, but it's very likely that Joseph's prison sentence was for the rest of his life. So you're going to remember for life, okay? So section one, in, boy, um, we didn't leave Joseph in a very good place last time, did we? In prison for adultery for life. But I want you to remember one more thing. So here we go, section one. I want you to think of how old Joseph was at the time that he was in prison in this section we're about to talk about this morning. You don't know yet, I'm going to tell you. Genesis 40 through 41. We know that Joseph went to Egypt when he was how old? 17. But by the time we get to this section, quite a bit of time has elapsed. Do you know how much? Not yet 20. We're moving toward that point. 20 years is the point where he's going to meet his brothers. We'll see that later this morning. We're not going to get to that section, but just for reference point, for giving us a kind of a timeline. Well, we can deduce how old Joseph was by the fact that we know how old he was when he appeared before Pharaoh. How old was when he appeared before Pharaoh? 30. <laughs> he was 30. So that's in our text this morning. He was 30 years old when he appeared before Pharaoh. So when he appeared before Pharaoh, how many years from the time that he went to Egypt until the time that he appeared before Pharaoh? 13 years. But something happened in between the time that chapter 40 takes place and the time that chapter 41 takes place. The prison, he was in prison for two more years. And we know that because in chapter 40, Joseph interprets two people's dreams. And he says, please remember me. Please remember me to the chief cupbearer when you go to Pharaoh because I really don't belong here in prison. And it says the cupbearer promptly forgot him for two years. So how old was Joseph in chapter 40 this morning? 28. He was 28. Okay, so remember 28. You've got two things to remember now. You've got he was in prison he was 28 years old, okay? He was young, he was 28. And I want us to remember as well, you guys kind of already got into it, saying it here, he was in prison for adultery, but was he innocent or guilty? He was innocent. So I want you to remember innocent. 28, he was innocent. And I want you on section three to remember that he had been there in slavery at the time that, he, that this chapter opens for 11 years. Okay, 11 years. So can you remember 11 years? So 11 years take us to the time that he's 28. I want you to think about this, though, for just a moment. Being in prison for 11 years, he's 28, means that he, was, he spent already about 40% of his life in Egypt. That's a long time. You know, time gets kind of relative. As you grow older, things change. And um, it's funny how big a difference two years is when you're um, 9 and 11, right? It's like, man, he's so much older than I am. But try 50 and 52, it's like, so what? We're almost twins, right? I mean, it, it, doesn't make any, it doesn't make any difference at that point. And some of you older still, you say, man, that doesn't even, I mean, it's just, it's almost negotiable. But look at how much of his life Joseph has at this point in time spent completely out of fellowship with his family, having no connection whatever with them, and no connection in a direct way to the worship of his God. So, 11 years, okay? So, 
He's 28. He was innocent. And he'd been there for 11 years. So now let's try it all together, okay? So let's remember both of your phrases, each section. So at 28, and he was innocent for life, and he'd been there 11 years. Okay, all right, now we've got the set for the opening of our section this morning, and uh, hopefully that'll drive it home for us so that we can make it a little bit more alive in our own experience. So, so Joseph, in this chapter, really banks everything on God. He was young. He was only 28. He was not guilty. He was 11 years already in prison. What was it that made the direct connect for Joseph? Joseph, though he was young, though he spent 40% of his life in Egypt, knew that God was there. And more than that, he knew that God was active. And because he knew that God was there and that God was active in his situation and circumstances, he banked everything on God. This really turns the light on for us because God is with us too. We all believe that theologically. We understand that theoretically. But the difference for Joseph is the difference that has to be there for us as well. Somehow we have to go and connect the power source so that the light really comes on, so that we experience what it is to not only know in our heads that God is with us, but to experience the reality of his power because he's with us. It really throws us back to the story that we talked about last time we were together in chapter 39, and you'll remember that back in Potiphar's house with that scheming adulteress, Potiphar's wife, Joseph responded with his very specific understanding, not only that God was with him, but with the ability to see God right behind, in a sense, the adulteress. And he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph saw God. Joseph believed God. Joseph banked everything on him and counted on him to come through somehow, some way. So as we open chapter 40 this morning, we find that story that you're familiar with. Joseph is in prison. He's been elevated to a fairly significant status in prison because of the fact that the Lord is with him. In fact, at the end of chapter 39, it says, whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. So sometime after this, the cupbearer, the king of Egypt's cupbearer, and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with the two officers, the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And these two men, one night, had a dream. And so the cupbearer, he dreamed about a vine which had three branches. It budded, it bloomed, it produced grapes. He took those grapes, he pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and presented it to the king. Joseph uh, then was asked, hey, I had this dream, it's really troubling me, there's got to be some kind of meaning to it, and he answers them, and he gives exactly what the dream means. The dream, he says, the three branches are three days, in verse 12, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up, verse 13, your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer, only remember me 
when it's well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. The baker takes courage because he hears Joseph's good interpretation. He should have been thinking a little bit better. And he said, well, I had a dream too, and I had a dream of three cake baskets, but in my dream, the birds were eating all the baked goods out of the basket on my head, and Joseph says, well, uh, let me tell you the interpretation of your dream. This is the interpretation in verse 18, he says, the three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And that's exactly what happened at the end of the chapter. So to give you a little bit of background, I, I want you to understand the situation into which Joseph is, is speaking of these things. First of all, there were often paid dream interpreters. Joseph wasn't one of them. He didn't come with his credentials from the highest college of the land. He didn't have the authority of being a paid interpreter. He was a guy in prison. But he had the one thing that the others lacked. He had God. Now, this is God in a very foreign place. This isn't God at home in your church. This is God in the most powerful nation of the world at that time, before the most powerful man in that nation. He's before the king in chapter 41. This is actually a papyrus called the Hieractic Papyrus, and it's significant to note. It's a, it's a pretty, it's, there's a couple reasons archaeologically why it's significant, but for our purposes this morning, it's significant because it lists 95 names of Asiatic prisoner, prisoners with names that are very similar to Old Testament names or names that are even identical to Old Testament names. Slave trade was something that was a real thing in ancient Egypt in what we call the Middle Kingdom. This is the guy that he would appear before in chapter 41, or at least it's probably. Uh, there's, there, there are varying views about dating the life of Joseph, um, and I'm indebted, I would like to say, to BibleArchaeology.org that has put out quite a lot of interesting information on the life of Joseph and reasons for believing that they're dating Joseph correctly. They're dating him to the middle kingdom of Egypt. Egypt was at war with Nubia. It was a powerful country. Babylon had not yet risen to prominence. So really, Egypt was the sole superpower. And here you're appearing not before the president of the sole superpower. You're appearing before the king whose word is life and death. This is Sesostris III. And, um, and it was probably before Sesostris III or Sesostris II that Joseph appeared. This is the kind of writing implement that Joseph would have used in prison. Amazing how much we know about Egypt, even though it was so, so long ago that these things took place. This is what a scribe in a prison, a record keeper, would have kept uh, records with his pen and ink. A little different than ours today. Looks uh, slightly more difficult to use to me, but, um, but that's what Joseph would have used as the scribe of the prison. Because you'll remember that because God blessed him, he was raised up within the prison, and he became the scribe of the prison. He became the record keeper. So he would have, just like today's prisons, they had to keep a lot of records in order to make the thing function well. It was probably somewhat bureaucratic, and this is what Joseph would have used to fulfill his responsibilities. This is in about the time, 1896 B.C. So Joseph 
Joseph was, um, was there arriving in Egypt about 1896 is, is a good guess. In Potiphar's house, Joseph was a household servant. A household servant was a pretty common thing for an Asiatic prisoner, an Asiatic slave to fulfill. He would be the guy responsible for bringing food and drink to his master. And you'll note in chapter 39, verse 6, that in fact Potiphar said he had no concern about anything except the food he ate. He left everything in Joseph's hands. So Joseph went from household servant all the way to being in charge of the entire household. He was Potiphar's steward. He just took care of everything. And Potiphar just didn't worry about anything because Joseph, being blessed by God, was entrusted with all the things that were necessary to make the household and probably all of his granaries and whatever else that was responsible, his estates. He made his estates run. And Joseph became very good at that. Interesting that God was preparing him for something bigger while he was in a place of suffering. He has a way of doing that. Usually the penalty for uh, adultery would have been the death penalty. It would have been possibly a fine or bodily mutilation, but not prison. But Joseph here is sent to prison. Possibly it's an indication of the fact that Pharaoh himself, that Potiphar himself didn't really believe that his wife was true. Now, I, I, you got to think that Potiphar had experienced some other issues with his wife in the past, right? I mean, he may have been a bit thick-skulled, we don't know, but surely he could see that his wife had some issues, so maybe he really didn't believe that Joseph was guilty, but still something has to be done or my wife is going to make life too miserable for me, and so he sent Joseph to prison, but he didn't have him executed, which is interesting. Uh, it's also likely, just as a background note, archaeological note, that Joseph was probably in the prison at Thebes because Thebes was where uh, it was in the royal, it was the royal city. And it's interesting to note that in chapter 40, you have, 41, excuse me, you have royal prisoners there. So probably he was in the land of Thebes where he was then promoted to the scribe of the prison. He was the right-hand man of the warden. He was in charge of all the records. And then... Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh's dream is interesting in that it's repeated twice. So remember that somebody else's dream was repeated twice. We've talked about Joseph, right? Joseph's dream was repeated twice. It's here that we understand why God repeats a dream twice, because Joseph himself tells us. But Pharaoh's dream, two years later, so now Joseph is 30 years old, 28 in chapter 40. 30 in chapter 41, because he'd been forgotten two years by that ever-grateful cupbearer who went out and completely forgot the man who was responsible for interpreting the dream. And Pharaoh has a dream of seven cows, and they're attractive and plump cows, and then he has a dream of seven ugly, thin cows that ate up the good cows. The second dream is very much like it. He has a dream of seven years of grain, plump and good, but then there are seven years of grain that are thin and blighted by the east wind, and they ate up the good grain so that there was nothing left. Pharaoh goes on a hunt. This is going to really drive him mad if he can't have the answer. Obviously, the dream means something, and he doesn't know what. He talks to all the magicians, all the paid interpreters, very likely, that were in the land at that time. They say, we don't know. We have no idea what this actually means. And it's at that point that the cupbearer has the light go on. Oh, yeah. There was a guy who told me my dream when I was in prison two years ago. And he frankly takes his life in his hands in order to be able to remind Pharaoh of his past offense. 
and say, but I think I know the man who can tell you the answer to your dream. So Joseph quickly changes clothes and shaves, which, by the way, is just archaeologically kind of an interesting note because there are some people who like to date Joseph to the Hyksos period of Egypt's history, but the Hyksos kings wouldn't have cared if he was shaved or not. They were fine with that. But the Egyptian, the pure Egyptian kings, did care. They, were, they considered facial hair unclean. I should have shaved, I guess. Uh, they considered unclean, and so Joseph is shaved, and he goes to meet the Pharaoh. And as he gets down to verse 16 in chapter 41, Pharaoh, and let me give it to you in verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. There is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered, verse 16, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph says, the dreams are one, the seven good years, the seven years of famine, the thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it to pass. And then Joseph is exalted to a position of great honor. Because Pharaoh recognizes if, in fact, this man is, is right, and interestingly enough, God confirmed to Pharaoh somehow that he was, then there's no one else that I'd rather trust with the provisions and the preparation for these seven years of famine than Joseph, who has a plan. He's practiced planning this way, probably in Potiphar's house, and now he's ready to do it on a national scale, like turning over the Department of Agriculture and most of the rest of the government in the United States to this man. It was a monarchy, not a republic, so things operated a little differently. And Joseph becomes, at this point, the vizier to the Pharaoh. There, he is exceeded by the Pharaoh only in the throne. That's what the chapter tells us. Only in the throne will I be greater than you are, Pharaoh says to Joseph. So it's Joseph who will make almost all of the executive decisions, and Pharaoh trusts him implicitly. Now, I mean, he hadn't even met Joseph until just shortly before this. He'd never heard that Joseph existed just before this. And Joseph didn't come to him from some high-ranking position in some foreign kingdom, having already executed this successfully. He came from prison, accused of adultery. Innocent, but accused. And somehow, because of the blessing of God upon this man, Pharaoh trusts him implicitly. It's interesting to think about the... the uh, ceremony, the promotion ceremony that took place here, you'll find that in verse 42, Pharaoh took the signet ring from his own hand and put it on Joseph. He took him and clothed him in fine linen. Think of it. Just hours before, he was in prisoner's clothes. He's now clothed in fine linen. He took a gold chain, which was a standard Egyptian reward, and put it around his neck. But Psalm 105 tells us, we'll look at it hopefully next time we're together talking about Joseph. Psalm 105 tells us that Joseph's neck had been in a collar of iron. So probably hours before collar of iron, now a chain of gold. He's put in the second chariot. Very likely it was the only other chariot 
is the implication. There was Pharaoh's chariot and there was the second chariot. That was it. They didn't use them in Egypt at that point in time for warfare. That would come later. So very likely, this is the only other chariot. Now he doesn't walk, he rides. He goes from having his knees bent to serve his fellow prisoners to having knees bent to honor the newly invested vizier of the land. Bow the knee, they cried before him as he went. He went from fetters on his feet, Psalm 105 tells us. He had fetters on his feet to having everyone else's feet directed at his express command. He was given a new name, Zaphonath Paniah. He was given a bride from among the honored of the land. In moments, Joseph's life completely turned around. And such a turn of events is probably, in one sense, a greater test of the character of Joseph than Potiphar's house. It's one thing to resist sin, open and easy to see. It's another to respond to authority and power and fame. Proverbs tells us that a man is tested by his praise. This was a huge test in the life of Joseph. It looked like success. It was success. But it was a humongous test. Would he pass the test? Think about what he actually would do now as this grand vizier of the land. He was said to be, in chapter 45, verse 8, looking back at it, Joseph telling his brothers, he said, I am father to Pharaoh. Now, did he father Pharaoh? No, but it was a title of honor given to officials who had served the king well or had done a special favor. Really, think about it. Really, it's like saying father of God because they treated their rulers as deities. Pharaoh was considered divine. That's a pretty heady title, father of Pharaoh. But he was also, in chapter 45, verse 8, the lord of Pharaoh's house. He was the chief steward of the king. He supervised the king's royal estates. He was in charge of all the king's granaries. But then he was also the ruler, it says, in chapter 45, verse 8, over all the land of Egypt. He was the chief record keeper. He was the supervisor of the government. He controlled access to the Pharaoh. He supervised construction and industry. He was in charge of agricultural production. He was the vizier who would have welcomed... Oh, get this. He was the vizier who would have welcomed personal ambassadors coming to Egypt. Maybe God's got a plan. Maybe he's working something out. But it's significant to note in this that Joseph's dream was not yet fulfilled. It really wasn't. What was the dream that Joseph had in chapter 37? What's that? Right. It wasn't yet fulfilled. This was a test leading to the fulfillment of the dream, but not the fulfillment of the dream itself. It laid the groundwork so that the dream could be fulfilled, but it was not in itself the fulfillment of the dream. The fulfillment of the dream comes when his brothers and his father and mother bow down before him. We're coming there, but we're not there yet, and we've got quite a while to go in the timeline of the life of Joseph. So Joseph, at age 30, the grand vizier of the land of Egypt, he's the father of Pharaoh, he's the lord of all Pharaoh's house, he's the ruler over all the land of Egypt, according to chapter 45, verse 8. 
but it was a long time in the making. How old was he? Section 1. And he was by this time, at the time he actually appears before Pharaoh, 30 years old, because he'd been forgotten for two years. So he was, first, at age 17, he was sold into Egypt. At age 28, he interprets the prisoner's dreams. At age 30, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. At age 37, he finally, probably 37 to 39, meets his brothers in Egypt. And the process was painful. He was his father's favorite, for sure, but... That made him hated by his brothers, and they hated him yet more for the dreams that he'd had. He was the household servant in the house of Potiphar, but he was accused of adultery. He was the scribe of the prison, an elevated, an elevated place in the prison, but he was forgotten by the cupbearer for two years. And finally, he's the vizier of the land, but he's still assumed dead by his family. But Joseph knew his God, and he knew that his God knew him. Simply put, Joseph saw God in the middle of his experiences, in the middle of his trials, even at the pinnacle of power and authority. He did not forget God. Like Moses after him, Joseph did not count the trials or the prestige or the fear of the king anything in comparison to the view of God just behind every circumstance. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11, looking at the life of Moses. By faith, Moses, verse 24, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing God, as seeing him who is invisible, just behind the king. Moses saw God. Just behind the king, Joseph saw God. Just behind the power, just behind the trials, just behind the difficulties of life, Joseph saw God. And it made it possible for him to pass the test of prestige and honor and fame. There are two places where we see this in these two chapters that I want to point out to you. And the first is in Genesis 40, verse 8. The king's cupbearer and baker said, we've had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, listen to what he said. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And in Genesis 41, 16 and 17, Pharaoh said, I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph did not forget God. Joseph's direct connect then comes in not just knowing about God, but in calculating on God, making God the basis for his reasoning, the basis for all his thinking. You hear that in chapter 39. How can I do this great evil and sin against God. Joseph didn't just know that God was present. He made his decisions on the basis of that reality, calculating on God. A number of years ago, we had some friends who were building a house. And I don't know how it happened, but somehow they found out in the process that the foundation was improperly laid. It was actually crooked. 
Can you guess what they did when they found that out? They tore out the foundation and started over again. You know why? Because if you build on a crooked foundation, everything will be crooked. That's what it means to calculate on God. It means that he's at the foundational level of every decision, everything that we do. We see God just behind every circumstance. And so we make our decisions calculated on who he is. We make every decision based on the fact that he is, in fact, with us. Joseph couldn't see God through all this process in the sense of having a visible vision of the person of God himself. He saw God by faith, and he made decisions based on that. He calculated on God. That's what Romans 6 talks about, that we talked about, discussed two weeks ago. We calculate on the basis of who God is when we say, I don't feel very dead to sin. I feel really alive to sin. But God says, no, you are dead to sin and alive to God. So if we actually calculate on God, we make our decisions based on what he says is true, no matter what we feel about it. This gets kind of meddlesome with us, because it's one thing to all affirm the reality that God is omnipresent, that God is with us right now. Yeah, God is here. His spirit is here. We believe that. Sure, we have decent doctrine, and we, we, yeah, we understand that. We got it. It's something else to calculate on that fact being true, because it feels risky. Joseph didn't just calculate on God, making him the basis of all of his logic and all of his decisions. He also acknowledged God in everything. He didn't just see God, he acknowledged him. He announced that God was present with him. He aligned himself with God by relying on him alone. He demonstrated that God was sufficient in his circumstances and worthy of trust. In chapter 45, verse 9, speaking to his brothers, Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. That would have been the perfect moment to really grind his brothers with his personal prowess and his his own self-sufficient expertise. But Joseph knew he didn't have it. He acknowledged God. In the middle of his circumstances, he gave credit where credit was due. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge God, and he will make your paths straight. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't trust your own way of thinking. Acknowledge God. So deliberately identify with him. You would if you could see him. Deliberately identify with him at work. Deliberately identify with him in your family who doesn't understand. Deliberately identify with him in the public market where people laugh and mock at people who have a God they can't see. Perhaps we can't see God because our thinking isn't really built on the facts that we profess to believe about him. So we need to calculate on him. Perhaps we can't see God because so long we've practiced not standing out, not making a stir, not mentioning God, and now we can't even recognize him for ourselves. Joseph didn't just see God, he acknowledged him. He recognized God in everything and deliberately announced his presence. Think of what it meant for Joseph to stand before the Pharaoh and say, it is not in me. 
God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, guys, we're talking to this guy who thinks he is God. The most powerful man in the world, and he thinks he's God. And Joseph has the audacity to say, I don't have the answer, but God who is over every God, he will speak. Tell me your dream. Joseph also connected with God by not just talking about God. He boasted in him. This gets challenging. We're, we're marching down the line of difficulty. Stake your reputation on God without leaving a back door open for God to fail gracefully. Oh, we, we don't believe God fails. But we don't want to have him look bad. And so we're going to try to, we'll leave just sort of a way out for God in case he doesn't come through. Think of what would have happened in 1 Kings chapter 18 if Elijah had taken that tack. The God who answers by fire, he is God. But, you know, it's always possible that God didn't want to do this thing. And so, you know, let's not get him too boxed in here. No, he said, pour on the water three times. Pour on more water. Pour on more water. Now, oh God, hear and answer. And God answered by fire. He boasted in God. That's what we heard in Psalm 34, verse 2 this morning. I make my boast in the Lord. The humble, interestingly, hear that kind of boasting and are glad. Joseph's confidence was centered in God, not in himself. He wasn't just confident in God with certain special abilities. He was confident, get this, and this is where we often fail. He wasn't just confident that God had certain special abilities. He was confident in his connection to God. He was certain that he was God's man. He knew for a fact that he belonged to God and that God would work through him. It is not in me. God will give you, though, an answer. Sometimes we call things faith that are really nothing more than self-centered, wishful thinking. Psalm 66 counters that. Truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Not just wishful thinking. God has done this, and he will do it. Psalm 34, 2, like we talked about, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. If we're not seeing God, is it possible that we're holding on to personal security, something that gives us a safety net that is not of God? Joseph didn't have one. Perhaps we can't see God because we really don't have to have it. Because we haven't abandoned everything to follow him. Because we're clinging to another way out if he happens to let us down. We really can't boast in God and trust in ourselves at the same time. We either trust God or we trust our own security.